I must be sleepy in the first service. I must lean over. I have to raise this thing up every time for the second service. <clears throat> On rare occasions, you come across people in my profession that are the best of storytellers. Now, we preacher types, we've, there's all kinds of us. We have theologians and motivators, expositors, exegetes, historians, reformers, prophets, snake oil salesmen, innovators, teachers, preachers, money changers, Bible belters, all of them. But storytellers, they are rare and they are wonderful. A few come to mind. Tony Campolo is one of the best. Barbara Brown Taylor, the late Fred Craddock, and Max Licato also comes to mind. And you'll find some people, some preachers that have better command of the Greek language or church history, but their ability to tell the tale, to weave and weld the power of the narrative is hardly equaled. And another great storyteller was Bruce Larson. Larson was a pastor for 50 years and was the author of two dozen books. He was a visionary who helped begin this small group movement instead of uh, classroom, traditional church classrooms a decade before anyone else was doing it. He believed churches should have depth and authenticity, not just mega-sized crowds. And above all, Bruce Larson believed in the power of the story. He would say, don't be sidelined by those who would say to you, I just wish our preacher would preach the Bible and not tell stories. Because stories are what the Bible is all about. It's the greatest of stories, and our lives are stories. When someone recalls your life one day after you're gone, it will be with a testimony, with a tale, a yarn, a sprawling, surprising, twisting, turning story, I hope, and not just a recollection of mere facts or dates or technicalities. Now, to that end, the story from Bruce Larson that I love the most and love to repeat is a true story about friends who planned the great American vacation. They were going to drive from their home in Alabama to California and back again in their station wagon. You know it's a dated story, station wagon. Anybody, as a kid, did you ride in the station wagon without any seatbelts? That was the most wonderful thing in the world. Ping-ponging around in the back like golf balls in the tile bathroom. It was great. But Anyway, they planned out their trip to the exact detail what cities they would visit, what hotels they would stay in. They had a a, a vigorous itinerary. And at the last minute, however, Larson's boss, Larson's friend's boss, called him into the office and said this, look, I know you've been planning this vacation for a long time, but this deal has fallen apart and you can't go. You have to stay here and help me rescue it. So the family was devastated, but dad, husband said, look, you've got the itinerary, you know where you're going, go without me and I'll stay here and work. And they went without him. Well, the man finished his assignment a little early, and he came up with this remarkable idea. He went to the Montgomery Airport and snagged a flight heading west. He flew to Denver, Colorado. When he got to Denver, Colorado, he hired a driver to take him up into the mountains along the Continental Divide. Knowing the exact plan his family was following, he chose a spot where his wife and kids would pass by later in the day. Now, this is before cell phones. I would never do this because my wife would never stick to an itinerary. (laughs) The man stood there on the side of the road for hours, waiting. And sure enough, in a few hours later, around the curve, around the bend, came that station wagon. He hopped up from where he was sitting, and he stuck his thumb out to hitch a ride 
from his family who thought he was 1,500 miles away. And she was so shocked, she nearly drove off the road. Bruce Larson asked him, why did you go to all that trouble? And his friend said, it's like this, Bruce. One day I'm going to be dead. And when that happens, I want my kids and wife to say, Dad sure was full of surprises, wasn't he? Marvelous story. And it leads us to our story today about mountains and surprises. It's not a suburban dad in a station wagon. It's Jesus and three of his disciples. It's not a family vacation. It's the transfiguration, a shocking event from which these three men would never fully recover. When they would write their letters decades later, they would revisit this and talk about being gloriously shattered by the experience on that mountain. Simon Peter communicates the wonder the best, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord in power. No, this story was real. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on that sacred mountain. Following this series of talks on the life of Jesus, we have arrived at a sort of bridge that we now must walk over. The transfiguration marks the end of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry in his home region of Galilee. He will slip through the region one more time, and then he will begin a great spiraling journey southward toward Jerusalem. It is at this time that Jesus, for the first time, begins to tell his disciples that he must be handed over to the authorities. He will suffer. He will go to Jerusalem to die. There is now no way around this fact. He has no other options laid before him. So the transfiguration is a last moment of encouragement for Jesus. He communes directly with his Father. He picks up the glory of heaven, if only for a little while. Symbolically, he is fused with Moses and Elijah, the great lawgiver and great prophet of old. Jesus fulfills their work, seems to be, Jesus is fulfilling their work, seems to be the message on the mountain. And he receives this stunning word of approval from heaven. This is my dearly loved son. And I noticed when Russ was reading it today, it's, it's almost impossible not to default to the King James. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it was encouragement for the disciples. They will now enter their most trying days of following Jesus. Because now, as they go toward Jerusalem, they will become more and more bewildered, more and more confused about what is going on. And it's like Jesus takes these three disciples, the leaders of the twelve, up to the mountain so that they will not forget in the valley later, what they have learned and seen on the mountain because they have beheld the glory of God. Julia Ward Howe, and here she is, the grandmother that she looks like, is one of America's greatest poets. She was in Washington, D.C., November 1861. She observed that Company K of the 6th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry Anybody from Wisconsin? Jeff? Jeff served in the 6th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry in 1861. 
she noticed that the 6th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry had assembled there, and they were on their way, Terry Olive, to Murray, Kentucky, to do battle. And she heard them singing a crude campfire song about abolitionist John Brown. John Brown, 10 years before the Civil War, was hanged for leading a rebellion to end slavery. And the Union Army had made up a song about him, had picked up his cause, and it went something like, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lays a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lays a moldering in the grave. His soul goes marching on. Well, they were singing that song, but Julia Ward an abolitionist herself recognized that the tune came from somewhere else. It was a tune from the Deep South that was being sung at Baptist tent meetings and Methodist brush arbor meetings, and it was an old slave song. That was its origin called Canaan's Happy Shore. Say, brothers, will you meet us where the parting is no more? Say, brothers, will you meet us where the parting is no more? Say, brothers, will you meet us where the parting is no more on Canaan's Happy Shore, same tune. I learned this tune as a child myself because my grandmother sang a song with different lyrics but to that same melody. She sang this song, Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send the power just now and baptize everyone. She learned that song as a child in South Georgia and brought it with her to the North Georgia mountains when she married my grandfather. And she thought about it again, she told me. (laughs) The, the, The song came back to her mind as an adult because her home finally received electricity in 1958. And she got an electric stove, and it was a revelation. No more wood stove, the heat, the work of cooking on a wood stove. But since power was new to the North Georgia mountains, the electricity was out more than it was on. And she was always having to go back to the wood stove, and she would stand over that wood stove and say, Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send the power just now. And then she'd add a line sometimes when she was jolly, instead of saying, and baptize each one, and a big old bucket of lard. Had to feed a lot of kids, make a lot of biscuits, so I guess that's important. But back to Julia. She used that old tune and crafted new words that the Union Army took with them to Murray, Kentucky. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And because of its early use, it was made sort of into a war cry, almost bloodthirsty at times, as we hope and pray that God will use us to enact His vengeance. But Miss Howe never intended it that way. She looked out of her Washington hotel room at the massive army assembled in the night, spooky sounds of soldiers marching, horses and wagons moving, campfires burning, and she thought it looked and sounded like the end of the world. To her, it looked like a scene from the book of Revelation when God's final justice would come to earth, and she felt, as an abolitionist, that the Civil War was, in fact, God's punishment for the U.S.'s enslavement of Africans. But she also had the transforming power of Christ on her mind. One of her lyrics that we never sing or accompany the marching bands or played at the rallies from that same song goes like this. I have read his fiery gospel writ in rows of burnished steel 
Let the hero, capital H, let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. She could have been there with the disciples on the mountainside that day, if you hear her words. For all of his healing, all of his preaching, his wonder working and his teaching, to this point in Jesus' ministry, he has been very much a man. A remarkable man. A powerful man. But now, on the mountain, we see the other side. We see the hero born of woman. Now we see the dazzling, shining, fiery gospel come to inhabit flesh. Now we see the glory of heaven transfiguring him. Our English word transfiguration comes right from the Latin. Trans, as in transportation, moving. And figura, or shape. The shape, or the figure of the hillside, is transported to heaven. It's not so much that heaven came down. It's as if Jesus got his arms around the entire mountainside and drew it up to heaven. And they are transported, as it were, right into God's presence. It's a whole lot more than Jesus glowing on the hillside like a nuclear reactor. It's Jesus bringing heaven and earth colliding together so that they see the glory, the light, and the power of God. And we leave it to Simon Peter to tell the truth about the situation. I don't know if you notice it in the text, but he said, it's wonderful to be here. And then there's an an editor that says at that point, Doug, 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 was that you? I only knew it was you because you acted like you were drawing a gun so quick. But anyway. (laughs) Simon Peter says, it's wonderful for us to be here, and that's the truth. But then there's an editorial comment right after that. He only, describing the human condition, he only said that because he didn't know what else to say. He's terrified by what has happened. But he still spoke the truth, and he has a way with doing that. Jesus takes him up to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gives him the biggest attaboy in all of the Gospels. And then turns around a few minutes later and has to call Simon Peter Satan by name and tells him to get behind him. Simon Peter says, I'll go with you wherever. I'll go to the cross. I'll die for you. I'll never leave you. And a few minutes later, he's brandishing a sword, denying that he even knows Jesus' name, and he's crying and hiding in the dark. And he's easy to pick on. He is. But he has this impulsive, intuitive place in his gut where he's able to speak the truth. And he sure speaks it here. It is wonderful for us to be here. And it was. Jesus, uplifted and empowered by this experience, glory, glory, hallelujah, goes marching down the mountain, back into the real world, the tough, unforgiving world, the world of reality. And Jesus would need every bit of what happened on that mountain to face the days ahead, as would the disciples. Simon Peter was exactly right. It was wonderful for them to be there. There are a few written prayers over the years that I've come to love. The prayer of St. Francis is one of those prayers. It begins, 
Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. You know that one. There's the Jesus prayer, common in the Orthodox Church. The prayer of the publican, as it's sometimes called. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There is a prayer by Henry Frederick Amalil that I use as a benediction. And now, my friends, we haven't much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So make haste to be kind and be quick to love, he said. But probably my favorite, outside of the Lord's Prayer, is one that is prayed often in the recovery movement. Twelve-step, AA, NA, SA, all of the A's. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. If you prayed this every day and meant it, if you tried to practice this every day, it would revolutionize your life. This prayer is printed on tokens and sobriety chips, necklaces, but it didn't originate in the recovery movement. Theologian and preacher Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this prayer in the 1930s. He wrote it as a benediction for a sermon, and it would be 20 years before it found its way into print. And the part we usually pray isn't all of it. The second paragraph, this one, is as powerful as the first. It reads, living one day at a time and enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. The most apropos line here with Jesus coming off the mountain, <laughs> taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. You want to go crazy? Let me tell you how. Try to make the world around you exactly how you would have it to be. Jesus met the world as it is. Sinful, struggling, difficult. He came off that mountain, and if you follow the Gospels closely, you see that he was immediately met by incompetent, powerless disciples, at least the other nine, the three that didn't go up on the mountain. Needy, clingy, demanding crowds. Oppositional, antagonistic religious leaders. Sick, tormented, and desperate people. He met hardened, cold reality. He took this sinful world as it is, not as he wished it was. It was good and wonderful to be on that mountain, but just as certain as the mountaintop is the valley below. As sure as the occasional glory is the daily task of gutting life out. As sure as the dazzle of heaven is the dullness of earth. It is a mixed bag. It all goes together. And don't let anyone ever tell you that as a Christian, you have to be happy all the time. Whoever is telling you that needs to be treated for manic depressive disorder. No one is happy all the time. 
And nor should they tell you as a Christian you should be sulking around in the valley all the time. It's ups and it's downs. You have to have the mountain to get through the valley. You have to have the valley to appreciate the mountain. Today, if you go to the mountain, the traditional site of the transfiguration, you go to Mount Tabor, about five miles from Nazareth. It's one of the most beautiful places in the Middle East, for my money. To get to the top of that mountain, you have to get off your big tour bus, and you get in these little shuttles, and you follow this steep serpentine road with no guardrails that has to be driven by 20-year-old young wild-eyed Hebrews at 80 miles an hour, apparently. Just so that you will, in fact, see God once you get to the top of the mountain. Because you have been talking to Him the whole way. (laughs) But that's easier than it used to be. When pilgrims first started going to the Mount of Transfiguration centuries ago, they walked 4,340 stone steps up the mountain. But you get to the top and it's worth it. The green fertile valley of the Holy Land lies beneath your feet. It stretches out in every direction and it's easy to imagine in a place like that that heaven and earth could collide. And it's easy to see why the Franciscans built a church there. It's an impressive facility that brings Peter's words to fulfillment. There is one chapel for Jesus, one chapel for Moses, and one chapel for Elijah. Massive pine trees. Cool winds blow off the Mediterranean. There is no better place in the world to worship. There would be hardly any place in the world better to live. But Jesus didn't take his disciples up on the mountain to live. He took them there to give them fuel, to bolster their faith, to encourage them, so that they would go back down into the valley and live empowered lives. We need the mountains. Visit them every chance you get. Breathe that lofty, high-altitude air. Watch heaven rip open and spill its contents down on the ground. But after the mountain, we are pushed out the door, off the top, and down the trail to live real lives of real faith in a real world.